My guest today is a board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon. Please welcome Dr. Drew Brown. Drew, how's it going? Very good. How are you, Rodolfo? How's how's everything been? Good, man. Good, good, good. Long time, man. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh Uh-huh. All right. So, hey, let's jump right into this. What do you do? So, I am a orthopedic spine surgeon, board-certified orthopedic spine surgeon, MD. I went to MD path, the medical doctor path. You can get there a couple ways, but I specialize in both complex deformity and minimally invasive techniques. And then I strictly just do the spine, anything from the occiput to the sacrum. Most neurosurgeons kind of take from where the spinal spine ends and above. So yeah. I just, I don't do brain work. I don't do head trauma, but I do everything below. Okay. Wow. All right. So division one basketball athlete and a spine surgeon. Not yeah. bad. Not bad, man. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned that you went the MD route. That kind of threw me off. There's other routes to go? Yeah, you can be an osteopathic. Sometimes you'll see Dr. So-and-so DO at mm, the end. So it's right. the post fixes. Yeah. So a DO is a doctor of osteopathy. An MD is a medical doctor. It's more of the traditional route. Once you get to a higher level and start subspecializing, it's pretty equivalent. Okay. All right. Yeah. So how long ago did you know that you wanted to be a doctor? Is it one thing where you were a kid that you knew I want to be a doctor or a surgeon? Or is it something that happened later in life? You know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be what's called a herpetologist. Mm -hmm. So I love snakes, reptiles, amphibians, lizards. I had a number of them growing up. Like Steve Irwin, remember the crocodile hunter was just my, he was the guru to me. Just, Mm -hmm. I thought he had the best job in the world. He could kind of be out in nature, deal with these dangerous animals, but connect in a way where it was just an, an odd association he had with them. So that always intrigued me. Uh, I used to kind of go volunteer at the zoo or pet stores because my mom didn't let me have a snake for many, many, many years. So that always drew me into the science realm. I always liked, like when I was a kid, I would read field guides just about the snake, where they live and what their genus name is and kind of their habitat. I'd like fact-based books. So when I went through schooling, science and math were not very difficult. In college, reality starts kind of setting in of what path do you want to go? Mm -hmm. And I didn't really want to finish school yet because I just was having a good time in school. I enjoyed it. Instead Instead of picking a definitive path, I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer. Let me just keep going on the science realm and get my medical degree. And then depending on that, I can still do whatever I want, but maybe the options be open more. And once I got to medical school, I started learning about the different specialties and working with my hands was great. Because if it wasn't, you know, it'd be herpetology side, and then it would be like me being a carpenter mechanic, something to where it's just hands-on and you can see the fruits of your labor at the end of the day, right? You're making a noticeable change on manipulating an object, doing something else with it and making it cohesively work, right? So I always just like that aspect of it. So I found surgery and initially I wanted to be a neurosurgeon when I got there. That was a big thing. And it's the mind of a 21 year old mm-hmm. thinking about what they want to do. And a lot of times the mind of a 21 year old priorities are much different than when you're 25, 30, 40. So a brain surgeon to me was most attractive to women. It was like the coolest thing you could be. Like, you know, I wasn't going to be a rock star. I knew that. I didn't play instruments. I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. You know, I tried it, just wasn't there. So what else would be this like coup de gras, awesome rock star for a brain surgeon? So I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be great. You're going to, and then I, you know, the reality hits once you kind of start seeing the surgeries met a number of neurosurgeons it just wasn't me right you know long 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 surgeries very tedious 14 hours taking out a half a millimeter half your patients die 100 percent of people with certain types of brain cancer are just going to die so they didn't seem as happy yeah then i saw orthopedics i don't even think i knew what orthopedics was when i was Mm. in in junior high high school because i never really had that many injuries thank god 
but learn about orthopedics. There were sports. They were like the actual kind of, you know, in crowd of medicine. They seemed mm-hmm. normal to get to medical school as a very specific drive people have. So a lot of times when we spend so much time in books, you don't spend a lot of time with friends and mm-hmm. others and social gatherings. So you're a little socially stunted, mm-hmm. a little socially inept in a number of ways. So I just was like, mm. but I got along with these people. They seem normal. They play sports. A lot of them were, were, were ex-athletes. So another way to access the spine, because once I actually started doing some of the spine surgery was through orthopedics because there is a spine division of orthopedics but a lot of it is more deformity related people with scoliosis people with fractures people with big slips you know the uh, neurosurgeons classically were trained in more of the just decompressive methods or if it had to go to the brain so it was a it was a perfect blend and but it was not planned by any means Mm. that's so interesting all right Mm -hmm. so that's cool from the herpetologist (laughs) to neurosurgeon out the rock star part of it okay all right <laughs> now yeah you know i think life comes in phases as well because i've never not still wanted to be a type of herpetologist i'll never be a world-renowned herpetologist that does a lot of different studies but to work with reptiles and amphibians in the future is going to be kind of the second coming or even i you know i love ichthyology working with large sharks so it's like sharks and snakes i love these just apex predators that because i loved dinosaurs as a kid yeah so it was our living dinosaurs and it was the closest thing i could get and i was enamored that the size of something like this and you know i've always been very interested in things that were that you can't see but you need to conceptualize yeah almost like a theoretical physicist you know you don't have to be great at math but the way that you can think about the world can really shape your ideas of it so i always liked that as a kid but I think the second coming will be a way to work with those type of animals. That's cool, man. Making sure that you, you get to your passions. Now, Absolutely. Now, now with the sharks, have you have you swum with sharks? Oh, many times. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've, I've been diving since I was 12. Okay. Wow. Yeah. You know, my, my dad got us into the water very early. And I was blessed enough to uh, have a pool in our yard when we moved to junior high. So I'd be in the water every single day. It was never like a competitive swimmer, but I was always a diver, deep diver. Mm-hmm. And once I started actually doing scuba diving, that took off. And, you know, vacations, we would kind of do it. But we were inland in Memphis, so I couldn't as often. And then when I moved to, we'll kind of go through the progression, moved to Hawaii, I could do it a lot more because I was closer to the water. Uh, and that got me into just all water sports in general. So. Mm. Nice. Okay. Awesome. Well, just to stick with that, what type of sharks have you swum? All different types of sharks? You Never been with great whites yet. Okay. okay. So tigers, bulls. The tigers, um, okay. Yeah, I did tigers. Black too. tip reef, no oceanic white tips. And then, you know, just smaller lemon sharks, nurse sharks, stuff like that just around. But there's nothing better. You know, I've been in a number of places. I've dove around the world, but coming upon a shark, having them being in their space, yeah. And being comfortable enough where they don't care about you at all. It's very mm-hmm. lucky to see a shark because you're so loud and so clunky and just so out of place. They're just kind of like, don't get in my way. So yeah. they can hear you from so far. They're usually gone. So when you're lucky enough to actually interact with them, it's great. You know? uh, cool. All right. Now, now back on the um, uh, spine surgery, what you, you mentioned some of the injuries or issues, but what are the uh, more common injuries or issues that you're seeing in your patients? So I'd say that 90% of people that I take care of in my realm are what's called degenerative issues. Mm-hmm. So arthritic related issues, arthritic related issues can affect any part of the body, right? Shoulders, yep. hips, knees. Uh, it's just where the body starts to break down. The way the spine starts to break down is that the disc kind of that soft cushion between the two bones in your in your spinal column will start to dehydrate and get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and start collapsing and when it collapses it's kind of like a balloon so it starts pushing out and when you know your knee breaks down and it starts having some arthritis there's usually enough room for it it's kind of just a single hinge it may cause pain in one area but when the spine starts wearing out and the joints in the back disc up front and even like there's a little ligament back there starts overgrowing it'll start pressing on the nerves and that nerve causes back pain, leg pain, and the neck it'll cause neck pain, arm pain, sometimes weakness, sometimes even 
sensory deficits and numbness and tingling, stuff like that. Mm. So I'd say most of the time you're dealing with arthritic related conditions in my specific practice. Okay. There are other type of spine surgeons that do mainly deformity where they do people who have curvature to their spine, abnormal curvature to their spine, that's creating an imbalance. And the imbalance leads to pain because in a perfect world, your head is supposed to be above your pelvis. And anytime it's not above your pelvis because you're tilted to the side or tilted out forward, it's going to cause undue stress on the muscles that actually stabilize your spine. And then you have to compensate by you know, bending your knees or bending forward, and it can just wear you out and cause a lot of just overall loss of life enjoyment. Mm. Okay. So most of the stuff I see is you know, herniated discs, um, something called a spondylolisthesis, where your natural anatomy has one of the vertebrae move forward on the other one. And this can cause a bit of pain in the back and in the front. So you may have to stabilize that region. Spine surgery itself is a, just a few things, right? It's taking away bone, a decompression, it's fusing a segment right. either from the front or from the back, and then it's corrections. So if it's not where it's supposed to be, you correct it. And you can do that cervical, thoracic, and lumbar spine. And depending where you're at, that's the different surges you're having. You're trying to achieve more room for the nerves or spinal cord in a stable environment. And the way we create the stable environment is called a fusion. Okay. All right. So taking away, fusing, correcting. Now, these surgeries, have they changed over the years since you've been in the industry? Have they changed over the years? Has technology changed over the years? And, and if so, it seems like an industry where technology has probably advanced a lot and changed over the years. But if so, how have you kept it on top of it and kept abreast of everything that's going on, all the changes? So I've been spine surgery for, let's say, 10 years now that I've okay. actually been kind of deeply involved in it. And think about it for about 15 in the last 10 to 15 years, spine surgery kind of goes through ebbs and flows. And we are in this age of minimally invasive spine surgery. Right. Okay. Not that it's good for everything, but there is a large portion of our population that probably could benefit from having less damage to the surrounding fascia muscle and taking away the amount of bone you need to not destabilize the spine. And kind of finding new indications for this problem is when you find new indications for smaller procedures, you don't want to end up doing more harm. The trends that I've noticed is that we start kind of using a lot more people. And this has happened over the last 10, 15 years as our ways to stabilize the spine have been kind of altered from either 3D mapping techniques or different instrumentation to make the actual process easier for the surgeon and more reproducible. The way you stay on top of these things is the term doctor, doctoris means to teach. So you're always learning. You're always either getting journals, looking up a case, reading about something that you haven't seen or a different kind of continuing medical education requirements to have an active license or be in good standing with the board that you have to do. And then yearly, you usually go to a course or two of your liking and some of the more prominent surgeons from around the country or world will come giving pre presentations about things that they're seeing. But, you know, most of the journals and articles and technology that were out, it's such a rigorous process to get that through, to get it through the peer review process and get it published. It's usually two years old. They're always a couple years behind on everything. You don't want to be too fast with the technology. And then it breaks and be like, why'd you do this? It wasn't even FDA approved or indicated. And you don't want to be way behind it and be a dinosaur and not doing some of the newer techniques that we know work really well. Right. So, you know, staying in touch with other surgeons and then just staying on top of the literature is kind of the most preferred method. If you're not in a teaching hospital, you could be in a university setting. I'm in a solo private practice, so I own my, my own business. So it makes it a little more important that I take the personal responsibility to kind of keep up on that stuff myself. Yeah, right. Okay, and then with mm -hmm. that, keeping up on a lot of these changes, any new or any recent developments that are pretty interesting that have, that have come out? You know, I've seen, I, I kind of liken spine surgery in general to kind of vascular surgery of, let's say the, the 90s. In the 90s, if you had a heart attack, you had any type of cardiac issues, a lot of times you got a huge kind of stem to sternum opening, open 
heart bypass, sternotomy. It was just a very morbid procedure. You know, mm. it was not easy to go through and it causes a lot of post-operative complications. The patients were already sick, so they're already at high risk. Over the last 20 years, since our kind of radiographic and imaging technology has advanced, a lot of the stuff is done endovascularly. So yeah. you're done in an IR suite and you get a stent and you go home, I mean, same day procedure, complication rate is way down. And now the open heart surgeries, the bypass is kind of still needed, but it's kind of used in a much more limited capacity. Same with spine surgery, right? We're figuring out that a lot of the disease processes, a lot of the pathology, a lot of the pain that people are seeing may not need the huge open whack in the five day stay at the hospital and the increased risk for infection and increased blood loss and the increased risk of just intraoperative complication. They just don't need all that when we could do something maybe that's a little less invasive. So we call it like maximal effectiveness for with minimally invasiveness. Right. Yeah, no, that's great. I've been seeing some TED Talks on, well, really on the heart side about a lot of developments like that where it's less invasive now. And I'm guessing with that, there's more patients that you can deal with now, older patients and also just less complications. So that's great. You can. It's just important that we don't push the envelope too much and try to treat issues that do need larger interventions with these small, cute procedures because you want to take care of them, but maybe you don't have the skill set to do one of the larger procedures, but you don't want to lose the patient. You know, there's a lot of other factors that go into it. So I kind of liken the deformity only surgeons that do 10 hour surgeries with two surgeons and they have basically universities set up and a lot of help to take care of these patients and systems in place to get them through it. It's kind of like the oncologist. Oncologist, if somebody has a tumor, don't go sit there and scrape it with the tumor and then send them to the oncologist. You know, it, it will make the job harder and possibly hurt the patient. Mm. So if you have anything, don't operate on that patient. Get them the imaging studies that they need and get them to the specialist. So I think getting everybody on board on kind of what we can do and what we can't do through more minimally invasive means is kind of the next step. Okay. Now, what was the schooling like? The med school fellowship, I'm guessing you did, mm-hmm. the board certifications, that sort of stuff. What was that like? So after Texas, I went to Boston. I was in Tufts for medical school. Personally, medical school was not that bad. First two years is mostly schoolwork. Second two years is mostly clinical. It's like if you talk to most people who have been to med school, law school, that you have a good time because it's, it's like you're still a college kid, but you're doing what you like. A lot of times the class load is smaller because you have a lot of outside reading to do. But I honestly had a great time in med school. Yeah, it was, it was like any other schooling where you want to do well and you want to get the good grade, but that's kind of just inherently within you. Boston was very cold. I didn't, I didn't like the cold in Boston. I've never experienced that before. But otherwise, med school itself was, it was okay. The large tests you have to do, kind of the placement test to get into fellowship, the placement test to have to pass your boards, all, all the board test prep stuff was miserable, miserable. Because you're literally <laughs> studying eight, nine, 10 hours a day, every day for months upon end, wow. just with the same material. Don't know if you're doing it correctly. You know, they're eight hour tests and you, we, you take probably five or six of them before you're, and then we have to do one. 10 years, but that was pretty grueling because your entire future depends on this score. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of pressure. After you're done with med school, you apply for a fellowship based on the type of subspecialty you'd like to. You don't have to, you can be a regular general practitioner, but if you want to be a pediatrician or internal medicine doctor, cardiologist, a surgeon, pediatrician, oncologist, orthopedist, you have to kind of go through some subspecialty training. You know, and, and thing about that is you back then it wasn't Zoom meeting. So you had to fly to 15 or 16 different interviews. That's something that the more I'm thinking about my path to get here, it's not accessible to everybody. It'd be very difficult, even if you got grants to pay for all your medical school, all right? There's so many other things that $4,000, $5,000, $6,000 was needed really? that if you didn't have people who could help you get the plane ticket, get the hotel, get the car on kind of a, a split second because somebody dropped out of an interview and you needed to get in there and you needed to get this spot. You didn't have that type of support, financial backing 
or at least some means, it would be very difficult. Mm. And I've always found that to be extremely unfair. And you can do all the grants and outreach that you want for the schooling, but it's all the intangibles that went into it that you don't even realize. So that that was just a little sidebar. Fellowship itself is pure work. So fellowship to me was, you are a practicing physician now. There's nobody under you. It's gone. It's like uh, after med school. Mm. Sorry, we skipped the whole step. We skipped the whole step. I was <laughs> Boston. Mm. I wanted to get away from Boston. I was lucky enough to get a residency in Hawaii. So Great. <laughs> that was like the greatest thing in the world. And I was there for six years. That was also a great experience. Residency itself is a job though. It's not like schooling. You're paid basically less than minimum wage based on the amount of hours that you work. When I was in residency, we had work hour restrictions, 80 hours a week, but they were very soft. I took overnight call every third day for like two years. It's draining. It's taxing. It's more just a marathon than anything, but it's a rite of passage. You get through it. And the amount of time that you spend just dealing with orthopedics only, dealing with which x-rays to order, how to read them, how to speak the language, how to present on this patient, how to physically examine, what red flags to look for. And you just, you're always constantly like kind of getting in trouble and messing up but it starts creating the neuroses in you about how detailed you have to be to be able to take care of people. So it's needed. But after that, I decided I wanted to do spine. I got a spine fellowship in San Diego. I picked up surfing in Hawaii and I love surfing. I surfed every day that I could. And I couldn't think of going somewhere where I could sit and have surf. So I was like, right. I'll do San Diego. <laughs> Once again, choices. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But had a great spine fellowship. We learned both minimally invasive, complex deformity. And then after that, you know, it's kind of you're in the real world. You're in the job, you're trying to find a job and you're just figuring out where you can land because you're not fully fledged it. You're not board certified until about two years after you graduate fellowship. You got this board window where you're collecting cases about everything, x-rays, MRIs, notes, and you have to go present them in front of a panel of three people. I think it was 12 cases. Mm. You know, or I think maybe throughout two, but you, it's, it's just, it's what you're worried about your whole residency career. It's why you get what's called pimped. It's called getting pimped when <laughs> somebody's asking you a question, like an upper level is asking you questions, embarrassing you. They're just pimping you. <laughs> and it's to get you ready for this part two of the boards. The part one of the boards is kind of like what we've done before that. It's just online tests that are grueling and painful within their own right we're comfortable with those by then this kind of uh, in-person presentation boards is it once you pass your boards you got 10 years you know you got to do cme credits but you got 10 years and you're board certified and you're part of the crew you know mm. so that's kind of where it's at but that time was all very difficult it's just wow. it's just a worry because actual boards themselves were enjoyable I was so prepared. I love the boards, like the actual board process. I was like, you guys got to do better than this. Come on. I know so much more than you're asking me, but preparation opportunity leads to success. So I was definitely prepared. Thank God. That's great, man. That's fascinating too. And one thing you can tell is that after Boston, Hawaii, San Diego, Florida, you made sure that you were in good weather places after that. Never again. Never again. I used to have a secret door in my apartment that I would just dream was like a beach in St. Thomas. <laughs> and that was my like thought. I used to have to go to the tanning beds and just lay in it to get the UV rays. And I would put on Bob Marley just to kind of like feel like I was in the sun. Wow. It, like seasonal affective disorder is a real thing. When you're not used to being in the gray for like a number of months, it gets to you. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting that sidebar you had about basically the barriers to entry into the industry. That's something that I guess I really never thought about before. So thank you for bringing up that point. Absolutely. It's, we got to understand everybody that I've ever worked with, I don't have any black orthopedic board certified spine surgeon colleagues Mm. that I work with every day that are just around that I see every day that I saw coming through. They they were, you know, and I've, I've met a couple and I've definitely had a number of mentors that were very prominent black orthopedic spine surgeons, but it's just not something you see often. Right. Even orthopedic surgeons in general, even doctors in general, right. black males are extremely underrepresented and black females. So 
it's that like 1.5% of the orthopedic population. Wow. So your, the amount of stereotypes that are brought upon you, the amount of unknown kind of racism that you deal with all the time from patients and you have nobody to really talk it through with except your couple other friends who are like, yeah, yeah, same thing happens to yeah. all of us. But you know, you deal with a lot of that and you're always trying to quell stereotypes. So yeah. you end up doing things just because you don't want people to think that you would do that. Like I over tip. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't look at me like, like I don't have money. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon. That's Even if all. you have bad service. Yep. Yeah. It's yes. kind of one of those things. And let's, you know, I'll tell your, your manager, I'll get you in trouble in a heartbeat, but <laughs> it's kind of uh, it's those things that you don't realize are wearing on you throughout training when you're not in groups of people that kind of share the same understanding mm-hmm. you know, there's like an unwritten understanding that most people of color or most kind of minority groups that identify with being a minority group can deal with and yeah. can talk to each other about and don't even have to talk about to just be around and be comfortable it's like oh, you get it this is ridiculous so yeah yeah yep yep now you own your own company now how was that going from working in a hospital to now owning your own company? How was that transition and any road bumps in a way? So when I first, my first job out of fellowship was in a place called Port St. Lucie, Florida, above Stewart, Florida. Stewart, Florida is kind of a, or Stewart, Jupiter. It's kind of a very prominent area. Tiger Woods lives there and mm. very kind of PGA friendly area. And that's right above West Palm Beach. I was like, okay, West Palm Beach, it'd be okay. It's Florida. But I've never lived in a, small town before Mm -hmm. right so I went from Memphis which is 55% black to Austin to Boston Uh, I did about a year in back and forth to New York Karen with my sister who was a corporate lawyer but she was vice president of the Yankees at the time she was there for a number of years and so I'd be back and forth to New York and then to Hawaii San Diego so I had all these really great places big cities that I just kind of I take for granted of what you're living in. Then I moved to a smaller town in Florida, in Southeast Florida. And it was an adjustment. It was a huge adjustment period. And I did it so I could kind of pass my boards. Remember, you got to select your cases. I would have no distractions, but you're still going to kind of have a life around that time. And this was 2014. Mm -hmm. And so I had a three-year contract till 2017. And so between 2014 and 2017, there was 2016. 2016 was the kind of birth of Trump yeah. and Trumpism. Right. And so I went through a time, a red state, and I'm very politically conscious. Mm-hmm. And being in like a red state with Trumpism at the time brought out all the cockroaches. Back then, the rebel flags were real big, mm. you know, before. So they'd be everywhere. You know, just the, the feel of it was it just felt unsafe after all. So I was like, okay, this isn't for me. As much as I'd like it here, as much as opportunity. And that was that was called a group private practice. So there's a number of different types of orthopedic surgeons there, hand specialty, total joints, somebody who did maybe some trauma work. And we all kind of shared call and I did spine and we just kind of shared the patients, but we share overhead and everything else. I knew I didn't want to be there. I ended up going to a more specialized spine group in Tampa for my second job in the U.S. And it was corporate medicine. So we had a number of patients, didn't need to market much, but I could do what I was best at. I operated, I did four surgeries a day, five days a week, and just a little bit of clinic. They had so much other ancillary staff to take care of a lot of the busy work. And I'd never been happier, mm. right? That company ended up kind of going down and doing their own thing and dissolved. So I knew I loved Tampa. After Hawaii, I hadn't found anything that I really loved. I didn't love San Diego because it was compared to Hawaii. Mm. And it's just, there's nothing fair to Hawaii. And then I was in Port St. Lucie. And I remember just staring up at the wall, like, what has become of you? This is it. This is it. This is where you're at. This is it. Or we're going to make, you know, just having those type of talks. And then I got to Tampa and Tampa is extremely integrated. It's beautiful. It's moderate. It's one of the few places I've seen where people actually coalesce together of Mm. different ethnicities, actually, you know, of college age to professional age women, which is a hard group to integrate, right? Guys can go out and hang out and do this, but I've just, I saw a lot more of that where it was just, I wasn't expecting Florida to be that way. Plus they have a great airport. So I was like, I want to stay in Tampa and I have a pretty good name in the Florida region. And I'm just going to 
give it a shot to open up my own business and do it my way. I've seen both models, both group private and the corporate. So there may be a good blending if I put my mind to it, because just it's the way you practice medicine, your brand of medicine and everything else comes. I am not a money hungry person by any means, you know, that'll keep you doing things that maybe you don't want to do. I tell people all the time, I may never be the richest spine surgeon, but I'm probably top five happiest. So I really like what I do. I do it my way. I take care of people. And then everything else comes in time. Right. You know, you know, and I think we have it backwards in society a little bit where we want to all have happiness. You know, if you ask somebody, why do you want a job? Because I want to make money. Why do you want money? So I can buy nice things. You want to buy nice things so I can feel better. Why do you want to feel better? Ultimately, every question ends up to because I want to be happy. Right. Because I want to be happy. Because I want to be happy. And we think that having things, if I get this nice whatever and I make more money, then I'll be happy. If I find this nice partner, then I'll be happy and have a relationship. If I start looking at my best and I lose weight, then I'll be happy. And I kind of just flipped it to where if I'm happy, then I'll usually take care of myself and I'll look my best. If I'm happy, I'll probably do the best job that I can do for people and I'll always have some job stability. If I'm happy, I'm going to treat myself and others around me, right? And I'll foster good relationships. Mm -hmm. So it was just kind of switching my focus when I started my own business to what actually matters. What's the priority? What's the motto? What's my vision? And it's patient care and ensuring that we do good work. And that usually if you're in this, that is a a large driving force to see the people that you're blessed to take care of do well. Mm. Man, love your mentality, man. Love uh, how you think about these things. That's great. And it, and it makes 100% sense. So that's great. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, can you talk about what a typical day of yours looks like? So let's see. It varies in spine just in general, just in medicine in general. I am usually awake by 4.30. I'm a morning person. So I'll get my coffee in, workout done. I usually do kind of some type of cardio type of exercise, spin bike or whatever it may be. By the time I'm done with that, just kind of watch the morning shows. Surgeries are usually in the morning, okay? So get my surgeries done, uh, depending on whatever time that those finish, and the amounts that you have, turnover time, and uh, how well, how smooth things are going. Uh, I'll have clinic afterwards, um, clinic you see patients to kind of work them up for surgery, give them other options other than surgery, conservative treatment, and then, or see your post-operative patients that you just had. And at the end of that, you're done. The nice thing about private practice is I don't take ER, emergency room trauma call, like I used to. So I'm not getting blown up by the hospital all the time and saying, hey, we got a pussed out hand or a broken hip or something going on, come in right now. But you are on call 24 seven for kind of your patients. Right. So it's a different type of call. It's a different type of mentality. But if you create good expectation management, most people kind of understand the process. So 24-7, but it's basically only going to be spine-related issues. Yeah, and it's 24-7 for post-op patients. Okay. Anybody who I haven't done surgery on, you can't just call them. Right, right. You know, but right. my post-op patients get my cell phone. And I tell them, hey, I'm not going to just throw you out there to the world. Right. If you need to get in touch with me, give me a call. Hey, 95% of people are extremely respectful, Yeah. you know. But it gives them that. And just having the know-how that they can reach you, they're usually like, oh, I'm doing fine. This is nothing yeah. I got to bother doc about. Let me look it up. You know? right. And we spend a lot of time in the preoperative conference and postoperative counseling to answer 95% of the questions. So yeah. if you do call me, I need you to call me because something's up. Right. And I need you to let me know what's going on. Man, that's great. And now you talked about the neurosurgeons and how long some of their surgeries can be. Uh, typically, how long are your surgeries? So they can range from anywhere from 45 minutes to three hours. Okay. Usually. Okay. And it depends on what you're doing. If I'm doing a decompression with terminal foraminotomy, uh, medial facetectomy, or just like a lumbar decompression, taking away some bone joint and a little bit of the ligament, maybe taking some of the disc away to create room in the back. It depends. On average, my surgical time is around... 40, 45 minutes, right? But remember, it's a long process. 
has to check in. They have to get to the pre-op. We have to do pre-op counseling, make sure there's a consent, make sure everything's correct. I have to mark the patient. Anesthesia has to see the patient. Um, you know, circulating nurse has to see the patient, do their whole rundown, ask them all the questions. That's a process. Then we got to bring the patient back to the room, put them to sleep, position them on the table, make sure they're positioned correctly. So they're not going to get hurt from the positioning. You're just laying on your eyeballs during a surgery and I'm working on your back. They're going to go blind. Yeah. Right? So we're just very neurotic about watching at every pressure point. Then we have to prep the patient, drape the patient, do our timeout procedures, make sure everything's in standing order and that we don't need to do anything before we the patient. So you got a big process leading up into that. So people ask me all the time, how long does the surgery take? I say 45 minutes. They're like, oh, cool. But the whole process is, right. you know, for a 45 minute surgery, it's still four hours. Yep. You know, for a three and a half hour surgery, if they have to stay at the hospital that night, because uh, it's a little more, it could just be a little longer. You know? right. But that's why efficiency is the key to, I think, one of the main keys to happiness. But you have to create a process that works for you. Okay. you know? And I'm very process driven. Hmm. Now, this is a question for me, and it might be a little ignorant question, but you play basketball. So a basketball player, someone that's their whole life been playing high leaper, jumping, slam dunking, always getting up there on the rim, getting back down you know, on their feet year after year after year after year after year. Does that do anything to their spine? My back is horrible. Mm. It's like twice a year. I'm braced up. You know, I got a large herniated disc at 5.1, 1 at 4.5, maybe a little stenosis is narrowing of my spinal cord out at 3.4. My MRI does not look great, mm. but I can't operate on my back. Right. And I'm, <laughs> so when I find out how to operate on my back, it's just how we are. Like, I'm perfection. <laughs> if I could operate on me, I'd do it. Everybody else can't do it. <laughs> so and it's not that bad. I, I, I take care of it. But yes, any type of called axial loading, yep. you know, anytime that you're uh, and hitting, hitting your back, it's going to cause a little more degeneration. And most of that is genetic predisposition, meaning that if your parents have bad backs and your mm -hmm. grandma and grandparent, and then it's kind of in your genes for your spine to break down, maybe lose a little uh, more hydration than the average bear, your spine is going to break down at a faster rate if you're doing these high level kind of impact sports. Absolutely. Okay. Mm. All right. Now, Let's talk about skills. What type of skills and characteristics would you say are important to be successful in your line of field? So orthopedic spine surgery, I'm not going to list them in order. I'm just going to kind of yeah. give you the ones that have helped me out the most. Consistency. Consistency mm. is everything, honestly. Highs and lows of doing real good with patients sometimes and not doing real good with patients and being hot and cold just doesn't work. You have to be a bit robotic in how you do things and develop a system that works independent of how you're feeling, but not dependent on who you're dealing with, mm. right? So you have to remain consistent. You always have to show up. And they say the just availability is kind of the best ability. You know, after that's affability, are you good at it? And after that, it's ability, like how good you are at what you're doing. So with spine surgery in general, though, it's a lot of spatial orientation. Mm. And so I have a 3D model of the spine that I can see and I can see where all the dangers are, the nerves, the major blood vessels while I'm in there, but I may be only looking through a hole that's one inch or three inches or an incision that's only four or five inches open and you're not seeing much in there. So you're using a lot of x-ray guidance, okay, to put instruments in, to put different type of hardware, screws and rods in. So spatial orientation, the ones that go without saying the hard work, the perseverance, everything that it's very difficult to get into orthopedics. It's very difficult to get into spine. It's very difficult to be successful at spine because there is a large attrition rate. It's very stressful mm. on you. So you have to find healthy outlets or else it will eat you up. You have to be able to humble yourself. And it's something that a lot of surgeons in general are not good at because there is a definite level of confidence that you have to have to be able to do surgery. You have to say, I can make this person better. We don't have crystal balls, but right. based on the information I have, based on the subjective complaints, objective physical findings, imaging, and the correlation of all of those and the person's overall psychological makeup, are they going to do well? You have to believe that you can do that. So when you don't do that, it can be a, a blow to your ego and it can just kind of ruin some people. If you hurt people, you need to so you have to be able to humble yourself and realize that in any moment, your life can change drastically mm. and not get cocky. Like I'm the best thing since sliced bread because I can do this. You're just, you're one of many surgeons that can do your job, right. honestly. So building in a little bit of humility 
has helped me go farther in that. So technical skills, social interaction, understanding how to interact not only with patients, but as a business owner, it's staff, it's vendors, it's contracts with different companies. You know, it's a business, honestly. And at the end of the day, as much as doctoring is doctoring and it's an altruistic endeavor, it's a business, a multi-billion dollar industry, just fine. Just those little implants you're putting in. There used to be many companies. Now there's 2,000 companies that do the exact same thing. And each of them are trying to get a piece of this multi-billion dollar market. So you know, there's also learning to navigate kind of your moral code and moral compass. Right. That will take you far. You know, because a lot of people get in trouble. A lot of people get in trouble because it's an easy way to make a lot of money. And not many people would know about it. But you can lose yourself in that. So staying humble, staying honest, and staying hungry to understand kind of what's down the pipeline and staying interested, not getting stuck in your way. Because it's very easy to learn spine surgery from 1980 fellowship and do the same thing because it works in your hands. And that's great and all, but there may be a better way. So Mm -hmm. staying up to date with kind of the current strategies and new technologies or removing old surgeries or ways of treatment that we found maybe aren't as effective. So that's where the humbleness comes into, you know, you just, you got to be pliable. You got to be flexible. Okay. So you mentioned that you surf in the mornings, you'll bike or do other types of cardio. You mentioned once before, just listening like to Bob Marley, which I love. What healthy outlets do you use when things get very stressful? A lot of times it's, kind of decompression techniques. So it'll be working out, finding a way to get your heart rate up. Meditation is a big one that I've picked up in my mid twenties and have been better about being more consistent with it. So usually finding some way to kind of calm my body, calm my mind, staying healthy in the way that I eat. So I don't really do a lot of sugar products. I don't really drink alcohol, you know, kind of college and med school, you kind of do all that and it just stopped working. So I don't really drink the alcohol. You stay away from any poisons because all those things just kind of slow you down a little bit. They make mm. you tired. And when you're tired and slow and not ready to show up to an important part of spine surgery, you're going to mess up. So you're just going to put people at risk. So you really have to be your best self to, to do the best work. Besides that, I have hobbies. I'm a shoe collector. So turned into a sneakerhead over the last number of years, kind of outdoor gardening, indoor gardening, indoor planting. Like I even I hate to say hydroponic because I'm not growing marijuana, but it's, you know, actual, actual true hydroponic uh, leaves and basil and everything else to stuff like that. But honestly, I kind of dip in and out. I was into quadcopters when they first came out a lot. I would build them, buy all the parts together, go race them, all these drones. I still do a little bit, but where I live now, it's not as fly friendly. Um, but I, shooting basketball. So sport-wise, yeah. I still have shooting basketball, <laughs> but I won't play. I won't go do a game, but we can have shooting drill, shooting exercises. <laughs> Got it. All right. Now, what do you love about what you do? The thing I love the most about, and this sounds prepackaged, but it's not, is when you get a thank you from a person, like when you actually help them. When you help somebody work and you take their pain away, there is kind of no greater joy. You yeah. give somebody, like I can have a cash a check for $100,000, whatever. It really means nothing. And that's what people don't understand about making more money. Yes, up to a point, making money actually does help. If you make $4,000 a year and you're in you're poverty stricken and now you make 40,000, your life changes a lot. Yeah. But if you make, you know, $75,000 a year and now you make 150, you may feel like it's going to change a lot in your life, but it's not. Right. Make half a million dollars a year and you're an executive and now you make, you know, 2 million dollars a year. Yeah, you can have more stuff, but all that stuff comes with a price. Yep. So you can give me all the money in the world to take care of people, but when people actually benefit and do well and feel better, and in fact, pre-COVID, when they gave you a hug and they were like, thanks, Dr. Brown, I really appreciate it. I feel a lot better now. This had changed my life. I can't do what I wanted to do. Now I can. That's the most rewarding part of your job. Second is being in the operating room. I love operating on people. Mm. I love cutting people open. I love 
manipulating, it's like that carpentry. I love manipulating people's tissues to put them in a trajectory for health. I, as doctors, we don't do anything. Like we don't really do anything. Even if I decompress your spinal cord and you had a lot of swelling and narrowing and it was caused function, even though I take the, the compression away or I take the disc out or I fuse something that was broken, I didn't fix it. All I did was kind of put you on uh, training wheels and pushed you out to the world and gave you a better chance of staying in line and your body healing. But I'm not in there directing every inflammatory cell and bringing all the different proteins and nutrients and all the different collagen factors and healing your body at all. People do that. I'm not doing a rehab for you. People are doing that. I'm not staying away from the things that you're supposed to stay away from that can increase your infection. People are doing that. So the, pe the people's bodies are perfectly tuned to heal. And that's all I can do. I can put you in a better direction for your body to take over. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's what people say, thank you for helping me. I'm like, you, you did this. All I did was just kind of say, Hey, this is the way to do it. I mean, if you can't do it on your own, I'll move some things around, but you actually healed yourself. So. Yeah. Back. Yeah. So it's so a good thinking. And that, that has to be rewarding having your patients that you've helped come and tell you, thank you for what you've done to them and helping them. That's great. Now, what about on the flip side though, Definitely. what challenges or obstacles are out there for you? Oh, what's not out there. <laughs> you become extremely neurotic as a high level surgeon, right? Because to be good at your job, to be a master of anything, like old adage, the man came to the master of uh, whatever his skill was and said, hey, how'd you become so great at this? You know, how do you know how to do that? He said, I made good decisions. He's made good decisions for my life. Well, how'd you learn how to make good decisions? I said, well, just from experience, a lot of experience. And then how do you get experience from making a lot of bad decisions? And it's just in medicine, the way you learn is from messing up right? You, you learn from your complications. They're your greatest teachers. They live with you and they're painful and it just doesn't stop throughout your practice. You can do everything perfect, but you always know that tiger's right in the bush waiting to change everything. So obstacles, every day something can be thrown at you, but you don't know what it is and you just have to be willing to take it in stride and understand. And that's experience helps you kind of calm down from that, you know, but every time the phone could call right now and patients affected or their legs yeah. stopped working or they re-herniated or they have an epidural hematoma and they went to the hospital and didn't call you and tell you and ended up coding and dying. Now their family's suing you because you did the surgery and they just don't understand. And so there's a lot of unknowns and uncontrollable factors that you just have to be okay with. Mm. So that, that's a basic obstacle. Getting to being a surgeon, they put a number of obstacles. Number one, it takes a number of like a, a lot of monetary help to even get that cheap to become a physician by any means. Next, it takes just a, the amount of dedication and perseverance you have to dealing with failure where you can't really take it as failure, learning opportunities over and over and over again. Uh, a lot of people just don't like that, that stress getting through med school and fellowship and going on to training the hours that you do that, you give up where everybody else is making money from, let's say 21, 22, even like people that you went to college with up until 35, 36, you haven't made any money. You're just, you're working out of debt. You're leveraging your whole life in the hopes that this will pay off one day with this grandiose idea that you're going to be this rich doctor. After everything kind of, you know, plays out, you gave up. 22 to 35 yeah you know a lot of people do get married but that's the one some of the best years of your life i'm missing out on thanksgiving and christmases and holidays and weddings because that's not an excuse you do not miss residency you do not miss work for personal things we'll give you you know seven to ten days and it just it's your schedule isn't that flexible to do much and a lot of times you're tired so after your week of or a couple of weeks of call that you were doing, you're just sleeping during your downtown. So your social life is kind of shot because you're back up at five o'clock in the morning and, and grinding. So the everyday grind can be an obstacle. I'd say personally, learning just the amount of 
emotional intelligence you have to have, mm-hmm. right? Um, like I said, you know, I always had a, a large social group of people play basketball. I was, you know, it, it was very easy for me to kind of learn that emotional at- intelligence, but we always do good. You know, it's like the NBA star who is now sitting on the bench in the Timberwolves. He might have a bad attitude at 20. He's just used to being the best and greatest in all the time. So now you're going from being the best and greatest and back to you're always being back to being a junior, always being back to being, always going back to being, uh, not knowing what you're doing. And that can wear on you where you have to build the personal confidence that I belong here. I belong here. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges to young people who have never seen others that resemble them in some of these, they're not options, mm. right? So you get there. My first day at med school, nobody's a doctor in my family. I've never had a doctor that I knew, right? You know, school was always important, but there were, doctoring wasn't a thing. It was like, I don't belong here. Mm. I'm not supposed to be here for the while. And then you start talking to them like, oh my God, they're not that smart. <laughs> or and just you deserve to be here. So you have to kind of keep going through that reinvention of yourself and having the confidence while maintaining kind of the humbleness and not getting overly cocky. Yeah. Wow. Very introspective answer. I like that. Great. Okay. Now, can you talk about a memorable moment in your career that really stood out to you? The, the parts of my career, and I think most surgeons' career that's out to them are the bad complications. Mm. You know, when something just went to yeah. so quickly and like it was something that was avoidable, but you realized what you did wrong, right? And so my memorable moments are, because I've been in the operating room, that something happened that was anticipated but unavoided like you were rushing you were doing something else and it was just then the patient had a prolonged healing course from that issue that creates the neuroses right that creates the kind of some of the best surgeons that are extremely particular about who they operate on how their staff collects paperwork and how they collect information how that information is uploaded to whatever system for your review. Remember, we see thousands of patients. I don't remember what I do on every single one of them. So the only snapshot I have of this patient's care is when I see them and I can dictate my note. But people can hear the wrong things or do the wrong things. And now you have a note that's wrong, a consent that's wrong. The patient has usually no clue. You know, they trust you to do your job. They don't know exactly what's going on in detail. And so all that can lead to a patient getting a wrong-sided operation or a wrong-level operation or the wrong patient operated on. Mm. And those are career-enders. You know, those are just events. So you create kind of this, this, this system that has to be reproducible to help quell some of the complications that you're going to have. Because your complications live with you so deeply. You sleep with them. You don't sleep for a while. Da, 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 that you're like, you know what? A stitch in time right here saves nine. Let me just take a little exercise get this off, kind of be a little safer when I'm decompressing this area, or let me just make sure that the screw is exactly like I like it so we can help avoid having intraoperative, postoperative complications in this patient having a, a prolonged course. So I'd say that's what sticks with you. You know, all the great things. So it, it's weird. People can tell you a million times over, I hear it every day. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I love you, Dr. Brown. You did great. You're the best. You're the best. You're the best. You tune it out. You can't hear it. You just don't hear it. It means nothing. They're feeling good. I'm glad they're feeling good, right? But it has nothing really to do with me. And on the flip side, in a holistic sense, it'd be great if somebody could say, I hate you, Dr. Brown. You know, it just doesn't work. Anything else that you were perceiving as negative, but for some reason, those live with you. You know, you're going to have one defect and a slew of compliments and it it just sticks with you and it creates this pattern of, let's try to minimize the amount of avoidable complications throughout this patient's time with us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I forgot. There's a word for that. I forgot what it is, but 
that's definitely something that is common that you see uh, in a lot of people where they can look online and see 900 comments and 899 of them can be positive. But that one negative one is the one that they're that's lingering. And negativity bias. Yes. Negativity bias. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We, I, we definitely have a negativity bias. Yeah. You know, yeah. or if, I'm not sure how you are in social media. If you're so that's something that I found just doesn't work personally for me. Like it's right. not, my business is on social media. It has its own Twitter account. It has all this other stuff, but it has turned into this dangerous outlet because I noticed yeah. I was on Instagram for a little while and I would do it as art. So I also like doing art and pictures and stuff like that. So I was out there, but I was not shooting for other people anymore. Or if you know, I do poetry and write things, I noticed that if I wanted to write it for other people, it, it didn't come from that same place because yeah. I was looking for that outward approval and it just wasn't making me feel as good. So I refrained from pretty much all social media besides Bleacher Report. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Well, hey, hey, Drew, we're at the end of this interview. I want to go to this quick hitter session. We're going to ask you some questions for fun just to get to know you a little bit better. But cool. before we do that, though, just want to see, is there anything additional that you would like to discuss or anything you feel like I might have left off asking you? No, I think we're very thorough. You know, yeah. it's a, a highly complex and we could go a number of directions with talking about kind of not just spine surgery in general, but just kind of being a professional in the road to get here. So I think you did a great job. Thank you. Oh, all right. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. So let's get to these uh, quick hitter questions. So first one, what's your favorite sports team? College, Longhorns, uh, cool. basketball, any team LeBron's on. All right. Since, since, <laughs> since, he was, since, I was, since he was like 17. Always loved LeBron. Football. Classically, uh, a Giants fan. Okay. But started falling in love with the Browns, and now I live in Tampa Bay, so uh, also root for the Bucks. And then baseball, Yankees, and hockey here, the uh, Lightning. And then I, I really don't have a soccer team. All right. Okay. Now, what if the the Bucks play the Browns? Who are you rooting for? Uh, good game. Okay. Like a good game. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So it goes to that. But anybody LeBron plays, I'd like LeBron to win. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're happy right now. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> Favorite movie or show? Difficult question. I was, you know, I was thinking about this. And with the amount of content that we have these days through streaming platforms and just at our fingertips, I feel like we have so many movies and I have so many favorite shows. Mm -hmm. I end up going back to the old ones that I love, like, yeah. I could watch Fifth Element, mm. Bruce Willis, and Chris, Chris Tucker, Tucker. Yep. all the time. Yep, Demolition Man. Mm -hmm. I could watch that literally almost every day. So a lot of them are kind of some of the classics that I'll just watch over and over. But that and Tombstone. Tombstone oh, yeah. Jeez, yeah. Love Tombstone. So many quotable lines from that. All right. Favorite musical artist or group? Outcast. Oh, Red all right. Mm-hmm. Got to nice. see both of them before they stopped touring. So, yeah. That's great. Definitely. All right. Favorite vacation spot? That's also a, a different... Bali would probably be it. All right. I love Bali. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uluwatu has a great, great surf. Seminyak, Kuta, just... I, I fell in love with Bali. I can't wait to get back. It's, it's a long journey. It's a long trip. But living in Hawaii afforded me mm -hmm. kind of that Pacific, Southeast Asia... Pacific region, um, but Bali is wonderful. All right. And favorite food or drink? Authentic Chinese food. Yeah. Right? Not like bullet Chinese from the store. It's like true authentic Chinese. Because I went to Boston is in my med school. Tufts is in Chinatown. Oh, okay. Like right in Chinatown. So I used to eat like congee every morning, like their porridge and then dumpling soup and then we would just get duck tongue at mm. night. We would just have all these things that weren't on the menu. The menu we couldn't see. There was no Westerners in there. And you used to sit at tables, round tables with other families. And maybe they're smoking. It was like, it was authentic, but uh, some of the greatest. And the second best, second best Chinese, authentic Chinese food I've ever had besides Boston was, I mean, of course, New York is great. was Amsterdam. It's a large, really? popular of like true authentic Chinese food in Amsterdam. Okay. 
Yeah, wouldn't think of that, but okay. And you know what? I have two other questions for you. Favorite sure. shoe? You mentioned you, you love shoes. So, what's your favorite shoe? <laughs> I think I'm gonna have to go um, Air Yeezy One, the Tans. Okay. Yeah. Not the twos. The twos had the. This was back when it was Nike. So the Nike Air Yeezy One, it almost looked like a a large boot. It had a, you know, I like the tan colorway with kind of the the gray front and the the strap that came across the pink inlining. Yeah. That's just it's a piece of art. I yeah. love that shoe. <laughs> yeah. And last one, you mentioned your love for reptiles and your love for aquatic animals. So you have a favorite animal? Great white shark. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's one thing I'd like to do before I leave the earth and hopefully not leave the earth while doing it is cage free diving with great whites. Oh, that would be awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Drew, this has been great, man. Learned a lot. This has been great interviewing you. It's so good to see you're doing something you're passionate about. You're able to use your hand and heal people. Congrats on all you've done, man, and all your accomplishments. And thank you for coming on to the show. I appreciate you having me. So thank you for everything. Yep. No problem at all. Thanks. All right, man. Well, is there any way, I know you said you're really not on social media, but just asking is any way people can reach out to you if they do have questions? Yeah, no, you know, my, my business is all in there. So okay. my, my name is Drew Brown, the fourth, so DB4 Spine is kind of the business name. So www.db4spine.com or DB4 Spine is my Twitter handle. I think it's my Instagram. Anything that DB4 Spine related, you can find me. Very easy to find online. Great. All right. Just put Drew Brown, Florida, Drew Brown, MD. Very Googleable. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Well, thanks a lot, Drew. Have a good one. All right. One. You All too. Right. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.